But, you know, before getting into our Making Contact series, um, the lectionary reading, um, you know, the reading that uh, are used in liturgical churches across the world, uh, we use the Matthew, the New Testament reading, but there's an Old Testament reading today being read all over the world um, from the book of Micah. I think that's Steve's maybe favorite text, Micah chapter 6. He has shown you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice love steadfast love or kindness and walk humbly with your God. With that as the lectionary reading, you have to comment uh, on the fact that one of the big concerns of the um, Hebrew prophets uh, and the, the Torah, the law and the prophets, the Jewish Bible, is the care of the stranger when it comes to justice, uh, those who are taking refuge. So the people of Israel fled as refugees to Egypt if Egypt hadn't received them, they would have been extinguished. Jesus and his parents, when Jesus was a boy, fled as refugees to Egypt again during Herod's reign of terror. We wouldn't have Jesus without the Egyptians taking them in as fleeing refugees. Friday, just this past Friday, was the uh, observance of the National uh, Holocaust Remembrance Day when uh, people in the United States remember the Holocaust in Nazi Germany. And we sometimes forget that in 1939, our liberal democratic icon of FDR refused to take in thousands of Jewish refugees uh, from Germany, citing national security. Uh, many of those same people returned to Germany and were killed in the Holocaust. We actually have the names of those people who were turned away uh, in the ship that was turned away. Uh, later, uh, 1940, uh, we were on a roll, we Americans, we rounded up Japanese Americans and put them in internment camps for the duration of the war. Um, actually, Bob Williams is a Japanese American. His mother uh, was banned from uh, entry into the United States by the Asian Exclusion Act which pertained from like 1900 until like 1963 or 1965. It took an act of Congress to allow Bob's mother into the United States because she married a GI, Bob's father, or we wouldn't have beautiful Bob Williams today thanks to that little act of Congress against the Asian Exclusion Act. All Asians were for, because they were like dirty or something, uh, couldn't come into the United States, including refugees who were being tormented in their homelands. Um, I think under Reagan, um, uh, Reagan gave formal apology to this in Congress 40 years later and $20,000 in reparations to those, to those families, something that has not been done for our African-American brothers and sisters uh, since that time. So do justice is a big thing and it's a national concern in the prophets. So on the same day that we remembered the Holocaust on Friday, our government banned all Muslims and only Muslims refugees from seven nations entering the U.S., even though in the past 40 years, no Americans have been killed by refugees from those seven nations. Many more were killed by white supremacists. More were killed by toddlers armed with guns that they got from, that were uh, loose in their, in their home. Uh, this is a very personal issue for us at Blue Ocean Faith because we've been in partnership with the Jewish Family Services 
uh, and the Jewish Family Services have supported especially Syrian refugees who are now banned permanently if they're Muslim from entry into the United States. And the Jewish uh, Family Service uh, people have been telling us, they've been doing this for decades, uh, uh, you know, settling refugees. They, they say the refugees coming from Syria are more traumatized than any refugees they've ever seen. Uh, they, and they've gone, undergone extreme vetting that sometimes takes as long as two years. They're interrogated by seven intelligence agencies of the U.S. government, have to be cleared by all seven before they're finally allowed to come. Um, and now we're adding to their trauma, the fear of their loved ones back in the camps, never being able to get here, and the knowledge that if, if they have to leave the country to go to a funeral, they can't uh, get back in. We have uh, professors at the University of Michigan who have grad students who are in that pickle that they've, in one of these banned countries, they're out for a funeral, and how are they going to get back to their grad program? It's creating chaos. You know, in 1939 and 1940, the church was largely silent in the face of this injustice. I was reading a church history book about it. The church was largely silent in the face of this injustice. I just want to say, let's not repeat that mistake, um, and let's be active at, according to our convictions. And I just want to uh, lead, us in a, lead us in a prayer, maybe especially remembering those uh, refugees that we've helped to resettle. You can only imagine the kind of... Uh, uh, stress that's been added already to their trauma. So Lord, uh, we pray, first of all, we pray that you'd have mercy on us as a nation. We pray that you would open the eyes of everyone involved in making these decisions. We pray that things would happen in their lives to uh, just give them a little kindness, a little justice, a little compassion. We pray that as citizens, we'd be able to speak up uh, effectively and with wisdom about this. And we, we especially remember the Syrian refugees who are here in this area settled by Jewish Family Services and the, and the re-traumatizing they're experiencing and the loved ones that are deeply affected by this that they're worried about. We pray that you would uh, rush to their comfort and to their aid and um, let this be overturned. Amen. Okay. Making Contact, our little series. Um, I, I wanted to pass out, and I forgot to uh, ask that this be done, Luke chapter 24, the text that we'll be using. Did, did we already, we're, go ahead and get, get working on that. I will tell you the story, and then you'll have the text in front of you. You can pull it up if you've got it on your smartphone. It would be Luke 24, I think it's 13 through uh, 35. Um, but um, in Luke 24... Uh, two, two disciples are walking from Jerusalem to a village about seven miles outside of Jerusalem called Emmaus. And it's an important time. It's the evening of the day when the rumors began to circulate that Jesus had risen from the dead. This is the first Easter Sunday evening. We know it's sunset in the text. Uh, these two disciples are grieving. They're discouraged. They're trying to make sense of events that don't make sense at all. And as they're walking along, a stranger, a third, joins them. This is nothing unusual. No one wants to walk alone in these like robber-infested routes between towns in ancient Israel. So if you saw someone, they look safe, of course you would join them. Um, as the stranger comes alongside, he wonders what they're discussing so intently because they're involved in intense conversation. These two cannot understand 
they cannot believe that this visitor hasn't heard about the crucifixion of Jesus of Nazareth who had captured the affection of the Passover crowds in Jerusalem swelling for that high holy day the opposition of some of the leaders and eventually the terrifying wrath of Rome that came down on him in crucifixion and it says in verse 17 I think then beginning with Moses and all the prophets uh, he this visitor interpreted to them the things about himself in all the scriptures so the stranger here is doing what uh, rabbis of the time did he engages in what was called midrash midrash is the act of interpreting and commenting on sacred text and especially it's stringing it together one text strung with another throughout the holy holy scriptures of israel as they reach their destination, it's a long walk, it's seven miles, as they reach their destination, these two invite their companion to join them at the inn for the night, which also served as a restaurant. And they're seated there for a meal. Uh, the stranger blesses the bread, breaks it for them, as was the Jewish custom, and in that moment, they recognize him as the Jesus that they had known uh, before in the flesh. And as soon as they recognize him, he disappears. Later, they're commenting on their shared experience of the stranger's midrash. And they say, didn't our hearts, come to think of it, burn within us while he talked with us on the road and open the scriptures to us? So this chapter that you have in your hand, Luke 24, serves as the bridge between two books in the New Testament that are both attributed to Luke as the author. They're sometimes referred together as Luke Acts. Now this is obscured in our New Testaments because in our Bibles, uh, the Gospel of John is placed between the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. But all scholars essentially think that Luke and Acts were conceived and executed as one single literary enterprise, hence it's called Luke-Acts. So Luke, the Gospel of Luke, is about the life and ministry of Jesus leading up to his crucifixion and then a couple of resurrection appearances. Acts, the book of Acts, recounts how the church continued to experience a living again Jesus after his death. Uh, this presence, though, was mediated by the Holy Spirit, which was poured out on the day of Pentecost. We hear about that in the book of Acts. So this portion of Luke, the last chapter, chapter 24, is part of a subgenre, a kind of literary um, uh, 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 you know, form in the Gospels called resurrection appearances. So for seven weeks after the resurrection of Jesus, Jesus appears off and on to various ones of the disciples, and there are accounts of this in the Gospels. These sorts of uh, resurrection appearances are, are kind of like unique historically because Jesus in his like transformed bodily form is appearing to them. And like people could touch his, his wounds and touch his body. And he, would, he would eat fish and it would be gone. It would enter into him. He was a physical but risen being. But after Pentecost, which is in the book of Acts, after the outpouring of the Spirit on the church, these resurrection appearances start up, but in a different form. Uh, and Luke 24 
is closer to that different form of people experiencing Jesus. Are you tracking me? Like there was a seven-week period where Jesus would appear to various individuals as risen just to convince them that he was risen from the dead. That kind of appearance stopped. And then after the day of Pentecost, Jesus started being experienced by the disciples, but in, in a slightly more mysterious, kind of elusive, indirect kind of way. Uh, the point of Luke 24 doesn't seem to be what Jesus said. Uh, in all the other resurrection appearances, it's really important what Jesus said, and they record it for us, the readers, like go and be, make disciples of all nations, or if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. These kind of messages that we have because they're recorded, Jesus is giving some really important information to them, but it's frustrating because Luke doesn't bother to tell us what he said. Because maybe what he said, the content isn't Luke's point, what Luke's point is, how do people experience Jesus, especially in the way that people will start experiencing him after the day of Pentecost? Because the way those two disciples on the road to Emmaus experience Jesus is more like the way we can experience Jesus. Like the way Gretchen talked about experiencing Jesus. And that's the... the concern in our series, Making Contact. How can we make contact with Jesus so that we can have an experience of him like that? Their interactions in Luke 24 uh, with Jesus are kind of ordinary. Um, their, their interactions occur during this long walk in which they were kept from recognizing him. The Greek is literally their eyes were like held. Their, their perception was frozen. They don't know it's Jesus until the end when he disappears. So there's, there's no drama when the, this, this figure is walking with them. That came later. So this means that all the conscious awareness of someone known to be Jesus occurs for them only in retrospect, right? They're not aware that it's Jesus at the time. So the only conscious awareness these two disciples have of the risen Jesus when they know it's Jesus is in retrospect. And, and be careful about this. It's not as though Jesus is hidden for most of the walk and then at the end, the big reveal, ta-da, it's me, you can see me now. And then they finish the conversation and they spend time knowing it's the risen Jesus. No, it's really weird. He's hidden until the very end. And as soon as they realize, oh, this stranger who's breaking the bread and giving thanks and offering it to us is Jesus. As soon as that moment of recognition comes, he disappears. Rembrandt uh, depicts the moment in his drawing, the moment of recognition with a poof. It, it would be like you're looking at a firecracker and you don't recognize it's a firecracker until it explodes and all you've got is the poof let, left behind. This is the moment. You really wouldn't call it a resurrection appearance. It's a resurrection disappearance in Luke 24. It's, just, it's different. So I'm drilling into this because it means their conscious awareness of Jesus as Jesus, not a stranger, happened in the realm of their memory. 
It's a realm that includes the functions of imagination, but it happened in the realm of their memory. Isn't that interesting? That's a lot more like our experience of Jesus. Um, so bear with me. I'm going to unpack Steve's story of Emmanuel Prayer. I'm going to rehearse it for us and make some comments on it. Last Sunday, Steve told a story of how people receiving Emmanuel Prayer um, uh, experience Jesus using the memory and imagination. So Steve is driving uh, to Iowa City, he couldn't even remember it in the telling of the story, uh, for a Blue Ocean conference with Cassie and Penny. He's driving in the car with Cassie and Penny. What is it, a seven, seven hour drive? Uh-oh, they love Emmanuel prayer. And I bet they love middle-aged men experiencing Jesus who haven't experienced him before in this way. And they cannot wait to try it on Steve. After they wear him down after a couple hundred miles, Steve's, you know, Steve grew up in a church that said the Bible is the only source of direct knowledge of God. The fact that the Bible says you can experience Jesus directly, just ignore that part. There's no way to experience Jesus except through the Bible. But Steve's older now and he's a little more desperate and he's in this car with these two people and he's willing to try. So Penny and Cassie ask him to close his eyes and identify a happy memory. And he's going through all the male pattern maleness. Oh no, no, it's this touchy feeling. I don't know if I like this. He does. He goes along with it. And he remembers getting a hole-in-one, I think it was the previous year, with his then high school senior son, Max. He tells them this memory. They encourage him to focus on the memory a little longer to fill in the details. The sights, the sounds, what was the golf course, what was the scene, if, if there were any smells, all that. Steve does this dutifully. He describes the more detailed version to them. Then Penny and Cassie invite Steve to give thanks for that. And he gives thanks for that. Wow, thank you for that wonderful kind of turn, that wonderful memory into a thanksgiving to God. Then they invite Steve to imagine where Jesus might have been, perhaps unrecognized by Steve at the time since he was so excited about the hole-in-one, in that happy memory. Steve gives it a try. And it turns out he pictures Jesus up on the green ahead of him when his drive goes into the hole. Jesus is excited. Jesus is yelling at people. Can you believe Steve got, a, got an ace? Come on over here from the surrounding hole. Steve probably a little sheepishly shares this with Cassie and Penny. And, and they, they just want more. So they say, oh, that's good, Steve. Now see if there are any more details. So he closes his, you know, in for a penny, in for a pound, closes his eyes, pictures Jesus again. Then something kind of cool happens. In his mind, uh, mind's eye, Jesus tells Steve that Jesus is proud of him. Like Steve is proud of his son Max. Jesus is proud of Steve in that same way. Like Max at this moment, a teenage boy is excited and proud of his hole-in-one uh, father. Jesus is proud of Steve too. And while Steve is telling us this story last week, he gets a little choked up. He earned $10 from me for that. He gets a little choked up. You'd only notice if you're another guy because it's guys, we know when other guys are getting choked up, right? It's, you have to really discern it. It's like a thing that happens, you know. But you know that's a lot of emotion for a guy. And, and because this is a very personal 
experience of Jesus that Steve has had and has touched him deeply. And, and it's probably one of those experiences that will be integrated into Steve's understanding of who Jesus is in relation to him in coming days. So that's Emmanuel prayer. It happens within us at the intersection of memory and imagination, just as it happened with those disciples on the road to Emmaus. So bear with me again. Neuroscientists have confirmed that memory and imagination are distinct processes, but they overlap in our brains, which makes total sense. You know, if we use memory in our imagination, right? I mean, if I say, imagine a duck, you accessed whatever memories you have to picture the duck. If all you've seen is mallard ducks, you don't imagine a black-bellied whistling duck. There is a black-bellied whistling duck. Can you imagine a duck pursing his lips and whistling with those hard little, you know... You're not going to imagine that if all you've seen is mallards because you're using your memory as part of your imagination. Now, we also know that memories include scraps of imagination. If you've ever had a dispute with your spouse or a like, par living partner, whatever, you know that they're making up half of these memories they're throwing back at your face. You know, memory is not just like a photograph of what happened that we store. Memories are shaped by the emotion around the event that is the trace for the memory that we're feeling at the time. They're shaped by what we focused on at the time. If we're afraid, our focus is more narrow when we have the memory, all that. In recall, we easily fill in gaps with our imagination. You know, it might be extreme. I might even remember doing that nice thing for Julia when I only imagined myself doing the nice thing and gave myself credit for it. And well, yeah, but I did this. Uh, actually, I don't. Oh, that's right. I just pictured myself doing it and I stored it as a memory. <laughs> so that there's a trace experience with memories, but we also add scraps of imagination. We embellish them. That's the way we physically see as well. That's another point, but I'm getting the mansplaining bad right now. So these two, memory and ima imagination are closely related. That's the point. And they meet memory and imagination in a little structure of the brain called the hippocampus. It's like, it's like shaped like this. It's in the middle of the brain where a lot of the emotion is going on. It's uh, the hippocampus to be distinguished from the university of hippopotami. That was hilarious. If you just had time and you could see my notes, that was hilarious. Hippocampus, University of... Yeah. So, here's the thing. This is also where the two disciples on the road to Emmaus had their conscious awareness of Jesus, knowing it was Jesus, right? In real time, Jesus was present, but they just didn't recognize him. The recognition happened later in their hippocampus. Maybe that's how it works a lot, is the idea. So here's, here's an experience I had a few months ago at the Blue Ocean uh, Summit that uh, Steve went to. Uh, this is the Friday night session. It's at the Sanctuary Church. It's a Blue Ocean Church in Iowa City. We've had A.D. Wasink here um, and, and talked. Um, I'm surrounded by people I love doing things I enjoy, and I start in the worship time, I start feeling super distressed and like, I want to get out of there fast. And I'm anxious. And I realize, oh, 
the physical format of this church building was reminding me of the last time I was at the church I used to pastor, which Emily later told me was exactly three years earlier. It was the third anniversary of my last Sunday at that church. The carpet was similar. The elevated stage was similar. The chairs, the kind of chairs, not folding chairs, but other one. Uh, the way the band sounded, the sound mix, and it was triggering me. Because the last time I was in a space like that was for reasons that don't really matter here. Distressing, even one might say traumatic. So if you've ever had a sudden surge of bad feelings from the past invading a happy moment in your present, you know what that's like. Like you're doubly pissed. You know, it's like I already went through that crap. And now I'm having a happy time. I'm on the beach and something is bringing all that up. Now this is like the, it's like the zombies. You know, they're back and tormenting me in my happy space. I was, I was distressed with that kind of distress. On Saturday morning, the next session, I dragged myself back to that uh, sanctuary, which had not been a safe place for me. And guess what? A.D. Wasink, the lead pastor, is leading a session where she's leading an, an exercise in Emmanuel prayer with about a crowd this size. It, they were all, a bunch of them were pastors, so she had people pair up. I, we won't do that here, but I don't want to, you know, force you to be intimate with a stranger that you don't know or whatever. Um, but, but she had us pair up, and I paired up with my brother-in-law, who, Bill, who attends that church, and, um, and then she's coaching us from up front on how to do the Emmanuel prayer with each other. So I went first, and my happy memory, probably understandably, since I was with Bill, was being with Bill um, maybe 20 years earlier at Yosemite. We took a trip together to Yosemite. So I told him that memory which involved the two of us running down from Half Dome, that big old, you know, outcropping of rock in Yosemite, if you remember the pictures. We're running down from going up to Half Dome and feeling total joy. It's like a gentle downhill. It was like I was flying. It was like, uh, you know, bum, 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 You know, when I run, I feel this pleasure. It was the endorphins. It was like, well, I, could, this, I could just keep going on forever. Bill listened to me describe this happy memory and then he did his part, coached by 80 from the front, you know. Go back to that memory and see if you can picture Jesus in the scene. Oh, I think he had me thank God for it first, which I did. Then go back into the memory and see if you can picture Jesus in the scene. So that's an invitation to use the imagination along with the memory, right? So I dutifully complied, but the memory shifted a little bit. It was before running down from Half Dome and more the trudging up to Half Dome. And I remembered being anxious as we got closer and closer to Half Dome because we had heard stories of someone recently falling off of Half Dome to their death. And apparently this happens like not infrequently at Yosemite, especially if it's wet and it's slippery because as you get right up to the actual outcropping of rock that is Half Dome, they have like a, they have like a, a rope line and you're, you're holding on to that rope line and it kind of falls steeply down on either side. And I was kind of anxious about this because I have an aversion to heights. And the end of the climb was looking kind of dicey. And it was my brother-in-law. And we're in like our mid-40s. And we're at that age where males like, 
I'm still in shape, but I hope you're not in better shape than me. And, you know, we're, you know, before the big trip, we're like, get in shape for the trip. We're going to be doing a lot of hiking. I don't want to hold him back. I want him to be the one holding me back. And so that dynamic was going on. Bill was hell-bent to go the distance and, and go over the rocky, you know. And I decided to skip that last bit. And I remember those stories of people falling a half down. I had this aversion to heights. And I'm picturing myself while he goes ahead, calling Bill, Bill's wife, Pat, to say he fell off and I didn't stop him going up there. I didn't go up myself, you know. Survival guilt to the max. I'm so sorry, Pat. In this second memory, then, I was tuned into the anxiety I felt and also the rivalry I felt with Bill because he was more daring than I was, Right? So I asked myself where Jesus might have been in that scenario. And what popped into my mind was Jesus going off with Bill as he was making his final risky daring climb up Half Dome. And Jesus was totally non-anxious about it, as was Bill. But when Jesus came back with Bill, he seemed totally fine with me staying behind. And like, it, she didn't give two craps about whether I stayed behind or whether I went. And like any brother-in-law rivalry I felt with Bill going on ahead, being the better man than me and all that male pattern maleness, it just evaporated. It, it just, just Jesus paid it no mind, so I took my focus off it. Then Bill and I took off down the hill, the original memory, and there's Jesus running with me and it's wonderful and... And, and I realized what started out as this anxious, risky thing in my mind turned out to be totally safe because I was like, Jesus was with me and everything worked out okay. And I don't know why or how, but having that Emmanuel prayer experience in that church worship space that had been triggering my bad feelings kind of just eased or even like erased the bad feelings. And I was fine after that. And that was important to me because I did not want to have those feelings in that space of this, uh, the, this uh, pastor that I love, Aidy and Tom, who uh, run that place. It didn't hurt that Emily gave her dynamite talk right after that and got a standing ovation. And I'm like, ka-ching. Um, <laughs> so, so all's well that ends well. Back to Luke 24. So Luke was a companion of Paul, we know. Paul is featured in the book of Acts. He wrote about a third of the New Testament. His conversion is told by Luke in the book of Acts. Luke was a traveling companion to Paul. And Paul, of course, is someone who, unlike the other apostles, never knew Jesus before his resurrection. Paul only knew Jesus as a risen Lord and experienced him in a vision. Never shook hands with a man, just as we have never shaken hands with the man. So the only Jesus we have known is the one who somehow gets through to us or we hear about him after having died and risen from the dead. So in this chapter that stands between the end of Luke and the beginning of Acts, it seems like what's going on is we're being prepared for the kind of experience of Jesus that will become commonplace in the sequel. An experience in which Luke's inviting us to participate, right? Jesus will be with them, though they may or may not be aware of his presence. That's a feature of Luke 24. 
the episodes of conscious awareness, oh, this is Jesus near me communicating with me, will be sporadic, will come and they'll go. And they will often take place in the realm where memory and imagination intersect, which is exactly the kind of experience that Emmanuel Prayer uh, mediates. Uh, Luke also, in Luke 24, suggests, doesn't he, that these moments will come sacramentally. Uh, Rabbi Mark Kinzer used that term a couple of weeks ago. Uh, sacramentally means that they will be conveyed through ordinary physical material means, like a conversation with a stranger or a friend or both or a discussion about the meaning of events or a conversation about a, the meaning of scripture uh, or the breaking of bread and the giving of thanks and the offering of wine at a meal. These are moments of recognition Luke is telling us in Luke 24. I think Luke wants us to see that the nature of the experience of Jesus by those disciples is very much like the nature of the experience with Jesus that is available to us after the gift of the Holy Spirit. And it happens in the hippocampus. <laughs> it, it happens in that region of our brain where memory and imagination intersect. So, um, let's try it. I will... Uh, I will guide you in this. Well, it might take as much as five minutes here. And um, I'll tell you what I'm going to do in advance, then I'll do it so you can be relaxed about the whole process. Um, I'm not going to pair you up with people. Um, I just want to mention that, you know, we're all wired differently. And having an experience like this in a large group context, it might work for some of us. And the context may not be that friendly to others of us. So you may experience it just like going through the motions. And that's valuable because, you know, it's like learning to shift a car. You focus on going through the motions and then eventually you get to drive and you have the fun of driving. So if it's just a going through the motions experience for you, that's fine. But that's also valuable because you might find yourself in a setting where it's more relaxed and you're able to do it. You could even do this with yourself once you learn what the, what the prompts are. So... Um, I'm going to function as your prayer partner, um, and my job as your prayer partner uh, is to first invite you to identify a positive memory. I'm going to go through all the steps now, then we'll go back and walk you through it. Then I'm going to suggest that you take time to focus on that memory so it becomes more vivid, more detailed. So, you'll, you know, memory will pop in your mind. Good. And we'll focus, give you a little time to focus on the memory, fill in the details. I'll ask you to thank God as you understand God for the goodness that is part of this memory. So we'll just do that for a little bit. And then I'll invite you to imagine where Jesus, or, or if you're not a Jesus person, God as you understand God, as long as that God is good and not a jerk, you know, uh, a good, kind, compassionate for you God, uh, invite you to imagine where Jesus or God is in that memory. And then I'll just suggest that you take time to focus on the aspect of the memory, you know, like what is Jesus saying or doing? Like go a little bit deeper, notice his body language or your sense of his feelings towards you. So it's, it's uh, whatever happens, happens and be accepting of whatever that is. Ready to go? And of course, anyone is free to opt out by spending the time in other ways. So.
Why don't you just take a little bit of time. Let's just take a deep breath, relax, get settled in our chairs. We're just looking for a time of quiet. It doesn't have to be silent. Um, I want to invite you to just identify a positive memory. Let me go with the first one that comes to your mind, as long as it's pleasant. If you've identified a positive memory, just uh, take a little time, more time to focus on that memory so it becomes a little bit more vivid, more detailed, what were the surrounding sights and sounds, the context, the setting. Spend a little more time with that memory, focusing on it. Often more details come to mind. Now, why don't you just take a little moment to thank God for every good gift is from God. So just thank God for whatever goodness or pleasantness that you experienced in that memory. Just turn that into a little prayer of thanks to God for the memory. Now, if, if you can, just try to imagine where Jesus, again, or as God as you understand God, uh, might appear in that memory, where, what he might be doing or feeling in that memory. Just use your imagination to picture Jesus in that memory. totally normal or fine if that's a little bit wispy just stick with that and now we'll just give you a full minute to focus more on that sense of focusing on what Jesus is doing maybe communicating in various ways body language your sense of his feeling toward you in that memory just take a full minute starting now with that
okay. And just gently return to normal awareness. Open your eyes when you're ready. Maybe store that for further reflection sometime. And I'm going to turn it over to Emily to lead us.